Inside, episode number 143 of the Show Before the Show podcast. Um, we, we, week after week, Sam comes up with different ways for us to uh, remember what episode of the podcast it is. This week, the subject line of the email, quote, Mr. Rogers weighed exactly 143 pounds for the last 30 years of his life because he believed 143 meant I love you. One letter, four letters, three letters in I love you. And then Sam sent a link that confirms that how on earth did you discover this uh i literally each week normally i try to get to a baseball stat so like for a while there was just searching in the right right for milb now it's just been going to the wikipedia page of that number (laughs) and seeing what i can find (laughs) and thankfully i would not send you something unless it was you know sourced well yeah true that's true i treat these i mean we are journalists after all right yeah you know Huh. So, okay. I'm sure he wavered. I'm sure there were days where he woke up and he was like, I'm kind of hungry. Oh, I'm weighing 142 this morning. Well, you know, I, I'm sure that's not completely accurate about exactly 143. But, you How know, it, you live and you learn. How bizarre. Um, yeah, I did not know that there was uh, a Wikipedia page for literally every number, apparently. Um, you could have also gone, this one would have been interesting, uh, Air Canada Flight 143 was a uh, a commercial flight that landed at Gimli, Manitoba Air Force Base after gliding 80 miles after running out of fuel on July 22nd, 1983. Oof. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, nope, I th- I'm good. Yeah, I did not want to start the podcast on a, a note of... I'm good. What would it be like to just glide <laughs> and pray for 80 miles? Could you? I wonder if they came on and said, like, uh, well, the reason that the uh, you're not hearing the engines anymore is because we did not put <laughs> enough gas into this plane. That's literally what it says on the Wikipedia, which it's Wikipedia, so you know it's right. Um, summary, fuel exhaustion due to insufficient refueling and improper maintenance. Um, yeah, I'd say nope. so. Yeah, when- nope. I am, I am good to never um, – actually had kind of a – not a scary thing in, in that – same vein at all but um traveling with uh with the university of denver basketball team as i do so much lately um we flew into fargo last week we had a game at north dakota state and uh going into fargo it's you know negative nine trillion degrees and there's a snowstorm and uh we're still gonna land um and as we're on approach this has only happened to me one other time and it was actually when i was in the minor leagues flying back to myrtle beach also into a storm we're on approach and you know landing gear goes down you can hear that we're jostling around because it's a storm a little bit frightening and then all of a sudden landing gear goes back up and you feel the engines kick in again and it's like, uh oh, that's not good. Um, and I am not the world's greatest flyer. I'm not a bad flyer anymore. Like I used to be. There was a time a few years ago when I was like pretty worried during turbulence. And now, like, I fly so much that it's like, eh, whatever. These people seem to know what they're doing. Um, so I'm not that bad of a flyer, but uh that kind of weirds you out a little bit. So I like kept my headphones on, just trying to not think about you know, plummeting to my death. And um, apparently our uh, one of our assistant coaches told me later that they mentioned over the speaker they couldn't land. We had to circle and burn fuel because we were too heavy. So we were like the opposite of the Gimli glider, Air Canada Flight 143. Um, and I'm really glad that they figured that out before we landed. Like, how did that <laughs> – we're on approach. The landing gear is down. They're like, oh, no, 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 we, we can't do this yet. What? It worked Terrifying. out. It worked Just out. focus on it. Worked out. You're here fine. now. <laughs> they know what they're the doing. Positive. Like you said, it's all good. Yeah. And uh, just the and, idea of you saying like you used to be a bad flyer. And yeah. Not a bad flyer just makes me think of like, you know how there's gold status and then diamond status <laughs> and whatever like that. You just got a card. I'm Delta like, they decided I'm you know, plastic. Status. Not a bad flyer. Anymore. I'm like acceptable. I'm like plastic status. There you I've go. gone from being like aluminum foil status to like, okay, well we can use this for something. Aluminum not, foil wrapped in valuable. cardboard wrapped in aluminum foil <laughs> to actual plastic. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so there's one heck of a start to a baseball podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome inside this week's edition of the show before the show from MILB.com. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. This week, we're going to be catching up with the number four prospect in the Miami Marlins organization, left-handed pitcher Braxton Garrett, who is coming off of Tommy John surgery last June 20th. Um, Braxton is in month number seven now of his rehab and is hoping to make it back to a mound in a game setting. Uh, so, Sometime in the second half of the 2018 season. So we'll catch up with Braxton coming up here.
here in a little bit. And before we dive into three strikes for this week's episode, we thank you for tuning in wherever you found us. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever the correct term for it is, Google Play, the Stitcher app, and elsewhere, we're at MILB.com slash podcast. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and uh, let us know what you think of the show. And uh, with that, we'll get started. Strike one this week, Sam, on the uh, the segment that we call Three Strikes, with three topics that we cover. One of them will be one topic, but two big stories in itself. And we will read to you from our good pals, Josh Jackson and Kelsey Hennigan at MILB.com. The first from January 13th, uh, this past, uh, what day was that? Saturday. Quote, after half an offseason of speculation, the Pirates have found their partner in a Garrett Cole trade. The blockbuster, contrary to expectations, does not include a single top 100 prospect. Pittsburgh on Saturday agreed to send the 2015 All-Star to Houston for corner infielder Colin Moran, the Astros' number five prospect, outfielder Jason Martin, number 15, and big league right-handers Joe Musgrove and Michael Feliz. Notably absent from the trade are both of the Astros' top prospects, outfielder Kyle Tucker, number eight overall, and right-handed pitcher Forrest Whitley, number 26 overall. Two days later, quote, a couple days after Pittsburgh added to its farm system by trading an impactful major leaguer, it's made yet another big deal that should affect its minor league depth. The Pirates picked up prospects Brian Reynolds and Kyle Crick from the Giants in exchange for five-time All-Star outfielder Andrew McCutcheon on Monday. The club's confirmed the Pirates also received $500,000 in international bonus pool money while the Giants received cash considerations to help with McCutcheon's contract. What do we glean from these trades? The Pirates obviously are are going into a rebuild. The Giants are posturing as though they don't believe they need a rebuild. But I actually, one of my my close friends who used to work in the minor leagues as well, um, but a, a friend of mine from college said, yeah, you can look at it as the Giants thinking, you know, we're, we're just going to go for it at the major league level. Or you can look at it, you know, the Giants acquiring Evan Longoria. Now these two trades um, with shipping out prospects uh, to grab somebody like Andrew McCutcheon. Now the Giants have a lot of pieces that should things go wrong, they could spin at the deadline and acquire a bunch of talent. And then there's the Astros who won the world series and then added maybe the best starting pitcher in the national league, uh, in stretches in his career in Garrett Cole, but that team loaded, they don't give up either. their their top two guys. Um, there's some really interesting stuff that comes out of these two deals. Yeah. I want to focus a little bit on the pirates just because there's more of a minor league aspect to that. And I right. think, there's just it's so much more of a head scratching move what they've done. I mean, we talked before about them trading, you know, Garrett Cole or Andrew McCutcheon. You know, McCutcheon, we even had that discussion last year, uh, before he he had a, a fairly strong, especially the second half, uh, in Pittsburgh this summer. But they, they've decided to kind of go into sell mode a couple of years after being a really strong team, you know, 95 plus win team, and, and to sell perhaps two of their best assets like this and not get any top 100 prospects back is real, really interesting from a organizational standpoint, like what they value. Um, you know, I'm sure the Astros are over the moon that they didn't have to give up Forrest Whitley or Kyle Tucker. Uh, and, and the pirates, you know, their kind of organizational strategy for a couple of years now has been hold on to guys as long as you can. Once either they became become unuseful or too expensive, even, uh, that's when you ship them out and you know, that's the life of a small market club, but it, a, it doesn't make them easy to root for. And B, if they're just trading for, especially the Astros, uh, you know, what they got back from the Astros were just controllable players. I mean, Colin Moran had a really strong season last year, triple a Fresno. Don't get me wrong, but you know, he's had some questions. He's basically a quad a player right now. Uh, could he fill that role at, at the hot corner for Pittsburgh on opening day? Probably. Uh, is he going to ever be an all-star? I wouldn't quite put it that way. He might be a middling third baseman at his ceiling. Uh, Joe Musgrove, probably going to move into that Pittsburgh rotation. That's great, and he's under control for a bunch of years. He's never going to be more than a three or four starter. At his ceiling, he's a number three starter, and I love his control, but he just doesn't have that package that screams, he's the guy who's going to replace Cole long-term. Michael Feliz has control issues. Jason Martin... You know, has only made double A and, you know, has some nice power and a little bit of speed, but, you know, it isn't exactly screaming uh, somebody who could be a, a McCutcheon fill-in down the road. So what they got back on that's, that end 
doesn't excite me that much in a way that it should for a team that's clearly entering entering a rebuild here. Uh, in the McCutcheon deal, I, I'm a little bit more enthused just because you know you're only giving up one year of Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, we don't know what he is defensively. He's no longer a center fielder. He's, they're definitely going to move him to a corner, so he loses some value there. He was already losing value defensively anyways. What is he going to be next year? As good as he was in the second half, he's had some real struggles the past few years. So, you know, you still don't quite know. Uh, getting a guy like Brian Reynolds, I think he could be kind of primed for a breakout. Um, you know, he did play last year at Class A Advanced San Jose, which is in the Cal League. Uh, he hit 312, 364, 462. So not eye-popping numbers necessarily, especially for a hitter's league. But he's a good switch hitter. He's got that Vanderbilt pedigree. Uh, you know, he's got one full year of, of pro experience now that he's seen from beginning to end. He got a futures game uh, experience under his belt. He's been recognized as a Cal League All-Star. Lots of good things to like from him. I think they're getting Kyle Crick at a real interesting time. He put in some, some solid major league work. Um, so they're definitely filling out a major league roster. It's just... You know, I, I don't have any insider information on, on what the negotiations went like. Apparently, the Astros weren't willing to give up, you know, any of their big names like Whitley, Tucker, uh, Jordan Alvarez, who, who could be a big time slugger for them. J.B. Bukowskis, who was their first round pick last year. They were unwilling. I, I mean, that's easy to say now. Uh, if you're the Pirates. I don't see you're them being under a gun to trade these guys. I mean, if you're not going to get a guy who is going to be a superstar someday or at least have that ceiling then I don't quite get the trade. If you're just filling out a roster and filling out spots with making a path for somebody who could be a superstar, then maybe I get that. Uh, and Mitch Keller, maybe he's that guy uh, who they're banking on, you know, being a big ace in the future. I just would have loved to have seen them add some depth at the top there, add another top 100 name to that. You know, Austin Meadows has his question marks. Uh, you know, I just mentioned Mitch Keller. He's had some injury issues in the past. Shane Baz is a you know top 100 prospect but he's just entering his first full season this year in 2018 uh this was a real opportunity for the pirates and i i feel like they kind of squandered it on its face um you know we'll see in the years to come how that strategy worked um but as these guys hold value today between cole and mccutcheon and the guys they got back i feel like they could have got a little bit more there what do you make of the the Giants right now? Because over the last few weeks now, we've seen Christian Arroyo shipped out. We've seen these two guys shipped out um, in this deal. And, you know, Brian Reynolds and Kyle Crick. Obviously, Kyle Crick seems like he really kind of found his spot being a reliever. Um, and he was maddening for a while, I know, in the Giants organization as a prospect, but kind of got himself figured out. Brian Reynolds maybe a little ways off um, being a guy who was at the, the Class A advanced level last year. Um, and, you know, now – the Giants don't have – I don't want to say they have a system devoid of talent, but really beyond Chris Shaw and Tyler Beattie, there's not much there. And Tyler Beattie struggled uh, in large part last year. Um, you know, we didn't see dominant strikeout numbers from him. Opponents at 282. He had an ERA of over four and three quarters. It was a 4.79. Is this a, a situation where the Giants are really believing, you know – this obviously isn't actually the case, but the even year thing for the Giants, they've been able to, from an actual pragmatic sense, they've been able to reload and not rebuild and make the playoffs every other year for the last decade, basically. Um, are we to believe that the Giants are in that mode, or do we think that maybe Evan Longoria, maybe Andrew McCutcheon, some of these other pieces, the Giants are acquiring with the, the background thought if everything goes wrong, these could be valuable assets for us to turn into more down the road. Um, so I'll, I'll tackle the first thing. Uh, I, I feel like the Giants right now, if I'm a Giants fan, I'm over the moon with how these trades have kind of gone for them. I know, you know, Christian Arroyo, they kind of have a third base problem. He could have filled in there at some point. Um, letting him go was not easy. Um, but I, if I'm them, I'm still incredibly excited that, they have a guy that you didn't mention, Tyler, who is Elliot Ramos, their first round pick last year, um, who I think a lot of people are going to see jump into a top 100 this year. He's the 19th overall pick. Uh, there were some questions about the bat. It's the Arizona League, but he did hit 348 last year with six homers in 35 games there, showed plus speed. He's incredibly toolsy, and to get guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Evan Longoria without having to give him up uh, is really, really exciting for them. Uh, you know, Beattie and Shaw do have their issues. But they are still part of the system. This is not a completely 
you know, this is not a desert of a farm system. Like it could be after you trade for two franchise cornerstones like Longoria and McCutcheon, who not only have obvious value on the field, the kind of sentimental value both to both of their franchises as well. Uh, I'll also throw in Steven Duggar, who I know a lot of people are high on for his defensive ability in center field. The Giants are still looking for a center fielder. If they don't sign one, maybe Duggar, if he can improve his hit and power tools, he can kind of fill in there as the season comes along. We'll kind of have to see. Um, but as far as this goes, you know, they didn't blow it up. And for a team that won only 60-something games last year, you would think that's the time you blow it up. I think a lot of things went wrong for the Giants last year. You start with Bannis and Bumgarner's injuries. Uh, I think a lot of guys had down years that they can bounce back from. Uh, and then you throw some other talent in the mix and you keep some guys who are right there between Shaw, Beatty, uh, and Duggar, like I mentioned. And, you know, there's reasons to be optimistic. Are they going to catch the Dodgers? No, I don't think they're even close to the Dodgers yet. Uh, but all you need is kind of a ticket to the dance, right? You just need to get into that wild card game. And if they can just with a couple retooling, a couple, adding a couple guys to fill in some spots, um, you know, the, getting to maybe like 20 more wins isn't as hard as it may look. Um, getting to 85, 87 wins, even from where they were last year, shouldn't be that hard for this Giants team, given what they already have. Buster Posey, like I mentioned, Madison Bumgarner, uh, some other pitchers. Um, so, yeah, I, do I think they did this? That theory you had about they picked up guys so they could trade them in July, I don't think that's the idea. I think it's just to get them to 85, 87 wins and see what happens then. And then maybe they become even more bigger buyers at the deadline. Uh, we'll have to see how things play out from there. But, uh, yeah, if I'm the Giants, you know, this could have gotten much, much worse. And to get uh, two all-star players like they did for the prices they paid, it, it's not that bad. Sam Strike 2, the Prospect Projection Series, continues with the American League Central this week. The Chicago White Sox are loaded. Um, what uh, what stands out most in the AL Central? Yeah, so the White Sox, you know, they, they are a team that is definitely rebuilding. There's no no two ways about it. Um, last year, we saw Yohan Mankata come up, Lucas Giolito come up, Reynaldo Lopez. And that felt like kind of the first wave. Okay, these are guys they acquired in trades. Uh, last offseason. Now, you know, they're in the majors. They're definitely going to be on the south side on opening day this year. They're locked in. Any improvements from here is basically going to happen at the major league level. Uh, so obviously the question is going to be who's next. And I was actually reading a mailbag uh, from MLB.com's Scott Merkin, where his last question was, every time I do one of these, somebody's asking about Eloy Jimenez and Michael Kopech. And his answer is just like, listen, they're going to be in the majors in 2018. What happens then is going to depend on how they do in the minors beforehand. Everybody's excited. I get it. We have to see how they do, you know, at probably double A Birmingham and triple uh, A Charlotte to begin the year. I get that. Uh, but the whole point of this prospect projection series is let's just have fun with it. Let's see what happens uh, with both of these guys. If they were to be on the majors from opening day it, in Jimenez's case, get 600 plate appearances in Kopech's case, get 200 innings. Uh, what would happen? And what I really like about this is it feeds our hunger for this kind of stuff. We want Jimenez to be what, doing great because we want to see him climb as quickly as we can. Same thing for Kopech. You know, Jimenez has almost elite power. Uh, how is that going to play? Well, Steamer thinks he would hit 23 home runs over a full season uh, and be worth 1.9 war, a WRC plus of 102. So he's already, despite playing, I think, 18 games at A he would already be basically a major league average hitter, which is so much more exciting when you consider he's probably going to be back at double A. He's probably going to get some time at triple A. So by the time, if he's a major league hitter now, gets in some extra time, some extra at bats, what is he going to be when he arrives on the scene, potentially by the all-star break? He could live up to his potential, you know, midpoint of the season, which is really, really exciting. Uh, Kopech, uh, numbers aren't quite as shiny. They're a 4.86 ERA, uh, uh, strikeouts per nine of 9.7. He was actually the only projected White Sox starter to average more than a strikeout per inning, uh, which shouldn't be a surprise if, if you know anything about his profile. You know, he's the guy who's going to hit triple digits. Uh, he's going to make your eyes pop in terms of when you're watching the velocity. Uh, he's also got uh, a plus breaking ball in his slider. 
the changeup's just kind of okay. It's there. He has some control issues, though, which are going to kind of hold him back. Steamer thinks he would walk 5.4 batters per inning. Uh, so that works out to be a 1.4 war. Um, so anybody who thinks like, oh, he should be in the rotation on day one, that's probably not going to happen with that kind of projection. Um, but again, if that's where he's starting from, by the time he gets some more innings in Charlotte, you know, we're probably talking with him about a, a debut in maybe end of June. Uh, he's kind of right in line with that Super 2 concern type player. Um, so with the White Sox system that you know we think might be the best in the game, we're going to be doing our farm system rankings uh, here coming up in the next couple of months. To see them turn over talent in the, the tides that they are. You know, again, Mankata coming last year, possibly Jimenez and Kopech coming this year. This is kind of, uh, this is how, you know, rebuilds are done well. This is how the Cubs did it. This is how the Astros did it. They're kind of falling in line with that. And, uh, you know, 2018 could be really, a really exciting season, I think, on the South side. Not in terms of wins, but just seeing the young talent flourish. I like it. I like it. It's uh, an interesting division. It's going to be a fun one to watch. Those White Sox deals have been so much fun to watch over the last, uh, really the last year. But in order to see those guys get to the major leagues, we get to watch them all now through uh, the rest of their climbs through the system. And that is going to be a ton of fun in that division. Yeah, and they've kind of done some trades that I don't, I don't think we've seen this offseason really. You know, like last year, uh, the way they were making deals, they were getting high ceiling guys by trading, you know, some of their best players. And, and that continued, obviously, during the season with Jose Quintana. It, it seems like it's a much more tepid market now. Um, so maybe they may have just snuck under the wire in terms of getting prospects at the right time, getting the right prospects, and uh, and turning it into a really deep system. So that's really exciting. Um, I'm going to be the one here to turn it over to strike three because, Tyler, you have a really fun story coming out this week on uniforms, which I know is really up your alley. Yeah, um, as as nerdy as a story I've ever written for uh, MILB, but um, I have decided that I'm going to try to indulge the the uniform nerd side of me and see how many people are interested in it. And uh, the first one that uh, that I did for the site, uh, which came out on Wednesday morning, um, is on the unique relationship between Majestic, Majestic Athletic, the company that has been the official on-field uniform provider, the exclusive provider for Major League Baseball since 2004, and their relationship relationship with the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Majestic was founded in the Lehigh Valley. They've been headquartered since there since the mid-1970s. Um, and they, starting in 2016, um, began making the on-field uniforms for the Iron Pigs. They are the only minor league team that Majestic services. So Majestic does 30 major league teams and the Iron Pigs, which is pretty amazing. They do everything on-field for the Iron Pigs. So whether it's BP tops, shorts, undershirts, hoodies, jackets, jerseys, pants, anything aside from new era caps that Iron Pigs players are wearing in a game, they're wearing made by majestic it's a really unique arrangement um and it kind of came about when the iron pigs moved from ottawa in 2008 for that season even before the ballpark was built and open they started to form a relationship with majestic the majestic clubhouse store has been the team store coca-cola park um since it opened and it was just kind of cool getting a chance to explore that relationship and it's so different there are three teams in the minor leagues um which have basically their own unique uniform providers and they are lehigh valley with majestic under armor services the aberdeen ironbirds that was actually the first of these three teams because the baltimore headquarters for under armor only 30 minutes or so from aberdeen and the hillsborough hops get their uniforms from nike they're the only nike team in the minor leagues and that's because as was explained to me by tim brunswick uh with milb works on the the business and the baseball operations side those three teams being in the backyards of those companies they felt like that was something really cool they could further those partnerships those relationships uh between you know, companies that make other minor league apparel and are approved for production of other types of uh, of minor league merchandise, but don't make on-field products um, in terms of the official uniform. So those three teams get to do that. No other teams have access to those companies. So it's really interesting just to see the way um, that those 
companies operate in that sphere being so unique and so small for them. But what I loved about the Lehigh Valley Majestic story is Majestic is not Nike and it is not Under Armour. It is a small family founded company. It was family owned until the mid 2000s um, when it was sold off to VF Corporation. It has since been sold to Under Armour um, slash Fanatics, the, the two companies that are going in on taking over the major league uniform contract starting in 2019. Um, and so it was just really interesting to kind of get into, you know, this isn't uh, a situation where the Iron Pigs are one of a billion clients um, for a massive international corporation. Um, it really is kind of an old time feel where a local manufacturer is crafting uniforms for the local team. And I thought that was really cool. So that story is up on the site right now. Yeah, that, that's not something I feel like people know that much about. And that's one of the cool things we have kind of being this close is that we can tell stories of just they just holes in people's knowledge like that's not something i'm going to pay that much attention to normally but now i get to learn something about uh just you know something i i see almost every day in terms of lehigh valley so that i'm really looking forward to that one well and it's well, it's, it's pretty it's fun pretty just kind of diving into these little things that you don't hear about um because we're so focused on you know whether it's the promotions or um ballpark developments or the other things that are in the the business side and they're just so, it just shows you how many aspects there are to operating a professional sports franchise and the way yeah. it worked basically for every other team um and by some unofficial tabulation that i did there are 160 non-complex minor league teams those are teams outside of the arizona league the gulf coast league the dominican summer league etc of those 160 teams 149 use either rawlings russell or wilson for their uniforms um and in addition to that, um, there are just those three other companies in Majestic, Under Armour, and Nike. Um, there are eight teams that are owned by their parent clubs that do not have apparently any makers marked on their uniforms. And what, from what I've been able to sort of divine, I think that in their Braves affiliates and Yankees affiliates, mostly the West Virginia black bears are also in this group, which is a little strange because they're not uh, in the same vein as these other teams named after the parent club, etc. I think those teams are using majestic uniforms just without the makers mark on them because they're not technically licensed for that. Um, but being owned by the major league club, etc., cetera. Um, that's probably why, but of those 149 teams that use Rawlings, Russell and Wilson, that pool is going to be shrunk down to two because Russell is actually getting out of the uniform business after 2018. They took orders from minor league teams um, through December 15th of 2017. They will supply teams in 2018. After that, they're done. They're going to focus only on the retail market. Um, they'll no longer be producing uniforms. Um, and that appears to be sport-wide. I know there are uh, a lot of college teams that use Russell across the country. Um, Russell used to be an exclusive provider of uniforms in Major League Baseball back in the mid-'90s. Um, but they, uh, they're going to be done with the, the uniform business entirely. So those 149 teams, Russell serviced 30 teams in 2017, presumably those 140. 49 are going to be between Rawlings and Wilson going forward. So just kind of another uh, wrinkle to this whole thing. And I'll just ask the question that came up while you were talking about that was if, if they're getting a new maker of their uniforms, does that mean redesign possibilities or does that really depend on who's making the jerseys that much? You know, I think it does um, because if you check out, you know, I'm trying to think of some teams off the top of my head, um, but Russell sort of has its unique look. If you look at, for example, Greensboro and Rochester, they have really similar alternate jerseys. There's kind of some similar stripes, um, a similar design and the angles of the way things are laid out on side panels and sleeves and that type of stuff. Russell kind of has its own style which I think is it's less traditional um, Rawlings and Wilson are certainly a lot more of the the classic minor league uniforms that you're used to seeing Russell kind of has a little bit more of a modern look to it so I would think yeah it's probably more than likely that we'll see um, different looking uniforms I don't think it'll necessarily force teams into to totally different designs or into rebrands I mean teams are going to rebrand when they want to it doesn't really depend on uh, on the, the manufacturer so much but I do think it'll be a, a different look for certain teams um, based on especially how the alternates look home uniforms for the most part road uniforms are pretty traditional in themselves but the alternate jerseys which are generally the team color jerseys um you know green in the case of greensboro red for rochester um i think those will probably look pretty different um, but the other thing that i thought was really cool about this majestic story 
So many teams go through a couple of other companies for promotional jerseys. So when you see the the wacky jerseys for, you know, Seinfeld night or Back to the Future night or whatever it is, those will go through a lot of companies. OT Sports is probably the, the most notable of them. But Majestic produces all of those special jerseys for Lehigh Valley, which I think is really cool. And not only do they do that, but they produce extra sets of all those uniforms at no cost to the Iron Pigs for the Iron Pigs to be able to auction off to donate those proceeds to charity. That's something that teams do all across minor league baseball. But generally, you still have to pay for those, I think, um, from from manufacturers. Um, Majestic doesn't make the Iron Pigs do that. The Iron Pigs get to auction those off. They benefit uh, Miracle League of Lehigh Valley and other charities. And I thought that was really cool. Um, but there's some really fun stuff in there just about, you know, kind of some of the innovation Majestic basically gets to use Lehigh Valley and those AAA games as uh, a live research and development lab 10 miles away from their factory. Um, and it's just a very unique arrangement that has led to a lot of innovation that has made its way to the major leagues. Majestic's been producing big league uniforms since 2004. Um, so it's uh, it was a pretty cool story. It's a fun one to tackle. Yeah, and it's something people can look out at you know, when they're going to games this summer, when you might know your local team, who they're wearing, but like who the, the team they're facing is wearing and how that kind of works itself out and why they're wearing the Jersey they're wearing and the type of Jersey, uh, or the look of it and all that kind of stuff. So again, just filling in holes in people's knowledge. Yeah. It's helpful. You know, it's the off season. We get to nerd out on things like this. Exactly. No, <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's fun. I get numbers. You get jerseys. I yeah, totally. Cool. Um, right. so, you know, it's, uh, and if you like it, if you like this type of stuff, let me know. Cause, uh, I'd like to tackle more of it. And this is kind of a feeler for how it'll be, um, received because I don't know how many people are this weird. Like I am. So uh, I guess we'll figure that I, out. I can help you on that one. If you want me to, <laughs> I don't think I it's do. No one based, based on that. I don't think I do. There's also another great story, um, up on the site from, uh, our good buddy, Josh Jackson. And the headline is underdog Rojas on rise with hometown angels. So we know it's because an underdog Kelsey Hennigan will hate it. But, um, 36th <laughs> round pick Jose Rojas, who's an Anaheim native had a great season in 2017. Really good story up on the site. Um, that was from Monday. So you can go check that out as well. And Sam stuff and, Kelsey stuff and everybody else's stuff. Michael Avalon had a great story um, about Phil Wellman, who uh, made headlines in 2007. You've seen the video of the manager laying behind home plate and tossing the rosin bag at the home plate umpire as if it were a grenade. That was Philip Wellman when he was with the double A Mississippi Braves. Um, that story is up on the site right now, kind of looking back on that 10 years later. Um, and that's a, a really good one to read. So a lot of good, the off season, honestly is one of my favorite times of the year because we get to dive into so many different things that we just don't have the time for in season but i love when we all get a chance to, to tackle stories like these i was gonna say i feel like we're hitting our off-season stride which normally isn't a thing yeah that just means like we are getting into this mode where of just feature after feature of interesting stuff yeah um so yeah i'm really looking forward to it and we're gonna have like more of this stuff coming up uh especially as guys are really looking forward to 2018 and minor league free agent sign and trades continue to happen and all that kind of stuff so so do stick with us even even here in the offseason so that'll do it for three strikes on this week's edition of the show before the show and coming up we're ticketed for the miami marlins organization and left-handed pitcher braxton garrett tommy john surgery in june a lengthy rehab process but hoping to be back on a mound in 2018 braxton garrett joins the show next We're going to head to the Miami Marlins organization for this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. And there we find the Marlins' fourth-ranked prospect, left-handed pitcher Braxton Garrett, who is on the road back from June Tommy John surgery after starting the season with Class A Greensboro in the South Atlantic League. Braxton, welcome. How's the offseason treating you? It's going great. Just just ready to be back on the field. I would imagine, man. So let's walk back through this. Um, back in June, uh, you go on the 60-day the disabled list. June 20th, you have Tommy John surgery. Um, and since then, you know, obviously we all know the, the lengths and the rigors of the rehab. What has it been like for you since the, the surgery and now being seven months removed from it? Um, it's been great so far. Um, you know, everyone knows it's long and tedious, and I do a lot of the same things every day. But um, – there's a good rehab group down here. I got a few buddies who unfortunately had the same surgery and we've been grinding hard. And like you said, we're seven months in now and 
I'm ready to go. It feels like, but still a long way to go. <laughs> well, and that's always the challenge too, is mentally you're probably so ready to be back on a mound and physically you kind of have to rein yourself back in. Um, what has that balance process been like for you? Because that cannot be easy to, you know, you want to be out there so badly, but you also know that, you know, the, the longer you take with the rehab, the healthier you're going to be uh, with, with patience and time. What has it been like trying to juggle those two sides? It's tough, absolutely. Um, you know, being a competitor, um, I want to be on the field. Um, but I know in the end, after rehab, the reward's going to be great, and I'm just going to have to be patient and continue to work hard. But it, it does get to me sometimes. I want to be on the field. I see my buddies on the field, and they're having great success, and I want to be in that group too. But I know once I'm recovered and back on the mound that I will, and I'll be able to join them. Let's talk about um, when the injury actually hit. Braxton, a first-round draft selection in 2016 of the Marlins, um, did not pitch in uh, in a minor league game that year, went to Instructs in fall of 2016. 2017, you make your professional debut in May, and first three outings, fantastic. You got an ERA of 0.66, a whip of 0.95. Opponents are hitting 146 off of you, um, and the, the strikeout numbers were great. I think 12 strikeouts to, to six walks. And then all of a sudden, May 25th, um, the injury hits, an inning in two two-thirds, six hits, four runs. Did Take me through that day. I mean, was it something that you kind of felt early on and tried to pitch through, or did you know instantly when it happened? What what was that start like? Um, well, I had been feeling a little bit of pain previous to that start, but I didn't think it was anything, and I was pretty successful. So I continued to pitch in that next outing. You know, I got uh, – hit around a little bit and that happens and just I after that game I watched a lot of video on my previous two or three starts and my mechanics were changing a little bit my ball was cutting when it doesn't cut um and you know I I said something I said you know my elbow isn't really feeling great so you know at first we thought it was just uh medial epicondylitis which is pretty much just inflammation in there and then I got went down to Jupiter got an MRI and it was torn. So, you know, that's how it happened. It was never one moment, um, but I did feel it a little bit beforehand. So you kind of, you know, when you're in those early stages and you're sort of hoping that it's something that's a, a relatively minor issue, did you, in the back of your mind, did you think at all, like, this feels like it could be more significant than, than what I'm initially thinking? Was there that fear there, or were you pretty confident that it was just, you know, inflammation or, or something like that that you could bounce back from pretty quickly? Um, it was definitely in the back of my mind, but I I really didn't think that it was torn or anything, but of course, the thought always there is always there being a pitcher, hearing about that injury. But I continued to pitch, and I probably should not have. <laughs> and that's so crazy. I've never heard that the your delivery and your mechanics obviously are going to change a little bit, but your pitches were moving in ways that they hadn't moved before while feeling that injury. Yes, uh, it's like that's crazy. My, like I said my mechanics were changing so my I was just doing things to try to protect my arm and make me not feel as much pain and so I guess whatever I was doing was making my ball cut it <laughs> it looked like I was throwing 92 mile per hour sliders it was that nuts. is nuts maybe it's something you know you'd rediscover that feeling when you get back you just added a new pitch to your arsenal <laughs> maybe i'll have to ask <laughs> so braxton when you get the the surgery done i mean there's a, a little bit of a gap uh between your last appearance and then the surgery and that's why we just explained with the evaluation of the injury but you know i've talked to so many guys who've had tommy john and it's the morning after or right after when you wake up following the surgery or those next few days it seems like are is as mentally challenging as anything you'll ever experience in your career uh, those you know 48 hours after the surgery what was your mental state like i mean you wake up and your elbow's the size of a grapefruit and you can't bend your arm there's so many just basic things you have to sort of retrain your body how to do walk me through that initial stage right after the operation um it was definitely tough um but thankfully I had my dad there with me who's been the greatest support ever but me being who I am I I try not to get down about anything I truly be uh, believed at the time that once all this is over I'm going to come back even better and I had my dad reiterating that as well. And 
I also had a teammate with me, Stephen Farnworth, who had surgery the same day. So we we were kind of just grinding it out together those next couple of days with our gimp arms. But, you know, it, it definitely was tough initially after, but it, it's all good. It all, it all comes with it. You know, you mentioned, uh, and not just in your organization, but really in any organization at any one time, there are a bunch of guys going through that rehab process. And unfortunately, from the Marlins side of things, they had a first-round pick two years before you and Tyler Kolek, who was going through the same thing um, after having Tommy John surgery uh, very shortly after his uh, draft selection, which was in uh, in 2016. Um, he had the surgery. 2014, he was a first-round pick. So to not only you know have other guys who are going through it, but also have another guy who is in your similar position being a first round pick being somebody that's you know highly focused on um how have you gotten to communicate with Tyler and what has he told you about what it what it takes um when I first got I've known Tyler's uh since the first day I got drafted uh, or since the first day I signed uh we went out fishing together and um he had I'm pretty sure he had already had Tommy John um then but when I came down and he Everyone knew uh, we were going to have Tommy John. I mean, he's been a, a good help. I mean, he's been he's been going through it. I mean, I'm always I, while I've been down there, while we we're down there at the same time, you know, we're we're asking questions, trying to get info from him, you know, trying to figure out what to do, what would be best. And along along with Tyler, there were other guys who have had the surgery, some older guys. So definitely had a lot of help from other players. Let's talk a little bit about the success that you were having prior to the injury. You start 2017 in extended spring, but you're only there for a couple of weeks, and then you make that jump up to full season ball and get in with Greensboro. And to go out and have those first three starts be so good, four and two-thirds, you give up one hit, one unearned run your first start, five innings the next time out, two hits, one run, four innings a time after that, four hits, one run, that was unearned also. What did that show you about the level where you were and how you could compete? I mean, those are your first three professional starts. You go out and you double up your walks with strikeouts. you got an ERA of 6.66 I mean what did that teach you about where you were oh I was absolutely very confident um I felt I was pitching very well um considering how my arm felt and I you know I don't well actually I didn't think I was pitching that well but the success I had success the numbers were pretty good but I walked too many people in my opinion and I'm Known for a guy who has pretty good command, but definitely um, I was confident. And I'm still confident. I know that while I was there, I had I had pretty good numbers. So coming back, the, I mean, the confidence for me is always there. But you know, those those three starts are definitely going to be a thing I think about. And you kind of have those now to be able to, you know, use as that carrot at the end of the stick to get you back on a mound because you know what to expect when you get out there professionally. So at this stage of your rehab, where are you right now? I mean, you kind of go through, you know, the the hand in the bucket, you're squeezing rice and you're doing the, the resistance band stuff and you're getting your range of motion back. Where are you right now at the, the seven-month mark? Um, this week I'm at 90 feet throwing-wise. Um, we were at 75 feet last week, so we made a little jump. Um, it's not as tedious anymore. We're, we're working out hard, really grinding in the weight room. And then, you know, the throwing's obviously the best part. We went all that time without it. So we really look forward to Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> Describe to me what that sense of relief is like to go from being a guy who's, you know, got his arm in a giant brace and is unable to really do anything with it to all of a sudden that first time you get to pick up a ball and throw it again. What does that do for you just from the, the mental side of knowing, all right, I'm going to be able to do this again? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about it months ahead. We're counting down the days. We're just ready to throw a baseball. You know, I feel like that's what I was born to do. Um, I, that's my favorite thing to do, and as well, as well as the other guys here. So it's unbelievable. It was definitely great getting the throw again. So when you go into 2018, um, there is a question as to, you know, for anybody, how long the rehab process is going to take. And obviously with you being such a young guy and being a first round pick and the Marlins wanting to be cautious with you, nobody's expecting, all right, April Braxton's ready to go out of the gate with the surgery in June. But as of right now, what's your ideal timeline look like to getting back on a mound and pitching in games? Um, well, they say it's a 12 to 15 month rehab process and, like you said, they're being a little cautious with it. Um, 
and a year will be June 20th, obviously. Um, but realistically, I I hope to be back August 1st. I'm, I hope to be ready August 1st and get that last month of the season in, get some innings under my belt. Um, that's my goal. Obviously, sooner would be even better. But, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm good with whatever because I'm, I've been through it. I'm seven months in, um, you know, but obviously I want to pitch. So August is my goal. What has the offseason been like away from rehab? I mean, you kind of have the uh, the strain, I guess, of watching your teammates, you know, go out and play for the rest of the season, and that's frustrating. But now when everybody gets into the offseason, at least you know, you know, you're away from the field, they're away from the field. You can kind of live, I, I would think, a, a little bit more normal uh, and less stressed out life. What have you been doing away from the field and just kind of to, you know, to keep your mind right and, and, uh, and be a regular guy for a while? Well, I've been down in Jupiter for the most part um, rehabbing. Um, I was required to be down here to rehab, so, but I have, uh, my two roommates and all the other rehab guys down here, we've gotten some breaks, you know, for Thanksgiving and Christmas and that's, uh, and that's great, you know, going home to see family and see friends and like you, like you said, be a normal guy again. But, um, you know, I feel like this off season has been great because I'm, I'm down here grinding every single day and being home, it's not as easy to do that obviously, but I know most guys, including myself, would be grinding at home, but definitely being down here with our coaches and our training staff has been great. The uh, the home that um, Braxton's referring to is Alabama. He was the highest drafted Alabama high school player since 1971 when he was taken seventh overall in 2016. That was Condridge Holloway who was taken fourth overall in 1971. Um, but Braxton, you not only have you know obviously the prep experience is really impressive and your your professional debut is really impressive. You've got some Team USA experience as well. And back in September of 2015, uh, the U.S.'s 18 and under national team won. At that time, it's third straight 18U WBSC World Cup. This year, this past uh, September, they won their fourth straight. It's a dynasty at the 18U level. What was that experience like getting a chance to, you know, everybody talks about throwing on the USA baseball jersey and what that means across your chest and all that, but you also meet so many guys. You play with so many talented players. To be part of that in 2015, take me through that. That was an unbelievable experience. Definitely my favorite baseball experience in my life so far. Um, it's just so great because you create a bond with those guys. You know, we're together from the beginning of August. Uh, well, you know, Tournament of Stars is that summer. And then we just spend so much time together. We travel. We had to travel to Japan and just create a lot of great relationships. And the baseball was just unbelievable, just playing those different countries. And like you said, throwing the USA on your chest, that's just the greatest feeling ever. And just the feeling that we brought home gold was awesome. And our our team to this day, we still have a group message and we talk at least once a week. You know, we're talking to each other, joking around, seeing what's up. But that was definitely the greatest baseball experience I've ever had. That team, um, I mean, was loaded with guys. And when you won that, that championship, you're in Japan – you're playing against Japan. Uh, it was in Osaka. You're playing, I think, in front of, I mean, 15, 20,000 people, something like that in that final. That atmosphere uh, is is difficult to replicate anywhere. But for you guys, you know, you're far away from home. You're kind of the underdogs in the fact that you're on the road. I mean, obviously, the U.S. had won two straight prior to that. But it's not often that you're playing a team on a, a home field for a gold medal. Um, but to be in an environment like that where it's, I don't want to say hostile because those fans are so just into the game. Um, what was that experience like? Because that's something that, you know, you're probably not seeing at the high school level or the minor league level too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh yeah. It was awesome. I'll tell you, I wish I could go back and replay that game. Oh, it was just incredible. Just all the fans. It's so loud. It's, it's crazy how into the game those Japanese fans are. And, you know, that Japanese team was great as well. They beat us previously in the uh before we played them in the gold medal game they were a great team and so were we obviously so the game could have gone either way but how the odds were stacked against us you know we're in japan in front of all their fans and their home home country um so it was just great pulling that victory out 
The amount of guys who were on that team, too, in addition to to Braxton, Hunter Green was on that team. Some guys we've had on the podcast before, Mickey Moniak, Nick Prado was on that team, Blake Rutherford, Forrest Whitley. Um, that was loaded. And the the rosters the USA Baseball has put together for the the 18U sides over the last few years has been incredible. Um, Braxton, a few more for you. We'll get you out of here. This is uh, obviously kind of a tumultuous, somewhat crazy time in the Marlins organization at the major league level. At the minor league level, it's stacking up pretty well for you guys. I mean, right now you look at MLB com's top prospects in the organization you see a couple of guys at one and five who are wearing cardinals minor league affiliates uniform sandy alcantara is the new top prospect in the organization jorge guzman's photo on mlb pipeline is in his staten island yankees uniform nick nader comes in at number seven he's in his modesto nuts uniform so they're reinforcing this prospect group around you and for you guys who've already been in the system to see this influx of talent what's that like from your perspective as a prospect and also knowing you know at the major league level right now things are obviously changing a lot so you guys are really going to be the focus in trying to get the marlins back to contending for division titles and more it's great um we're glad we have those guys you know more competitors to push us great players obviously you know obviously we hope when we're healthy and we get going we all are going to be big leaguers together and it looks like that's what their plan is. So, you know, we're excited about it. We're glad to have they focusing on the minor league side of the ball or minor league side of the team. So, you know, we're going to welcome those guys 100%. I can't wait to meet them in spring training. So it's great. All right, man. Last thing for you. We'll get you out of here on a, a fun one. Give me, let's say you're, you know, going for a, a complete game shutout. You're going for a win. You get to face two batters. You get to face one guy in your organization and one guy anywhere else in baseball. They could be at the major league level. They could be at the minor league level. Who are the guys you want to face with a game on the line? One of your Marlins teammates and somebody else anywhere else in baseball. Um, from our organization, uh, I get out. I'd like to face uh, James Nelson. He was our minor league player of the year um, this past year, and he was in Greensboro with me. And, you know, he's one of the best hitters in our organization, so I'd love to get him out 100%. But uh, <laughs> for the other one, I'm not sure. Uh, whoever is the best, who, you know, um, <laughs> those Astros guys, Springer, Correa, Altuve, give me any of them. And <laughs> – that's who I'd like to. That's who I'd like to face. That is awesome. Braggs Garrett, the number four prospect of the Miami Marlins organization, and a guy who you can find on Twitter at Braggs Garrett, getting ready for 2018 and uh, and wrapping up the rehab. Hopefully, here in the next few months. And Braggs, and congrats on uh, on the progress to this point. And we wish you all the best of luck the rest of the way, and hope to see you on the mound uh, coming up this summer pretty soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Benjamin Hill off this week uh, from the podcast, so hopefully he's not reading my tweets. Um, let's get into one more topic before we wrap up this week's edition of the show. Um, Sam and I are both nerds about Black Mirror on Netflix. When did you get into Black Mirror? Somebody told me about Black Mirror right after the very first season went on Netflix when it was still, as I understand it, it was a British-produced show that had not been picked up by the network that initially ran it. Netflix got the rights to it. It blew up on Netflix, so Netflix started producing its own, um, and the show has been as good or better ever since um, that first season. I don't know if anything will ever, I don't think anything will ever compare to that first season. Cause it was so, it was like revolutionary to me. Nobody explained to me what the show was like. Yeah. Yeah. So, me neither. I watched the first episode, which I will not say the plot here because this is a family friendly show. Yeah. Um, and it and blew your just, mind. I was just saying, Oh my, to myself over and over and over <laughs> and over again. It's like and a it just, modern day technology focused twilight zone. Basically. Yeah, is that, yeah. Once you figure out that black mirror essentially means what happens when you just stare at your iPhone all day is then it kind of clicks into place about what it's all about. But you know, it, right. it comes with twists and turns and sometimes the stories are pretty straightforward. Um, but it's sometimes always they about, are extraordinarily disturbing. Yeah. It's always just about like what if this one particular piece of technology either drove our lives or impacted us in a certain way right. um, that doesn't exist now. Right. Um, so what we thought we would do in light of, uh, of not talking with Ben this week, we thought we would discuss what a minor league baseball centric episode of Black Mirror could look like. Sam, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so one I had, and I'm sure I'm pulling from many episodes in doing this, is um, – so we start 
with a player who has been traded. You know, he's walking into a clubhouse um, trying to figure out what's going on. And, and we're going to keep this minor league focus. So we're, we'll say he's walking into a double A uh, clubhouse. And, you know, he's trying to figure out what he's going to be doing here. He's got all these people he's got to meet. He's got to meet the trainer. He's got to meet the manager. He's got to get the call from the farm director. Um, you know, they all say they're excited to get him. Um, but what, how is that going to, you know, like, what is he doing here? What is this going to mean for his future? Um, and, and things kind of work their, their way out. And, you know, he goes through some struggles and there's some, re- there's one point where they call him and threaten to cut him, even though he went, you know, bad 400 in the week before. Uh, there's another one where, you know, there's another week where they just throw all these things at him where he's, he feels like he's only seeing hundred mile an hour fastballs over and over and over again. He can't quite figure out why if he's just going through a bad run of seeing pitchers or what. And then the next week it's, it's all guys with curveballs, and, you know, baseball is so random and sometimes these things happen, but it's just really weird. And he's trying to piece things together. Yada, yada, yada. Essentially what happens is by the end of the episode, he realizes he is actually a player who is in a simulation. Uh, a team is trying to figure out whether they want to acquire a prospect. So they put, put the thing through a simulation and they try to see what, how he does against, you know, hundred mile an hour heaters, how he does against curveballs, how he does all against this stuff. And it's all in this guy's phone. Essentially it's all in the GM's phone and he's getting all these simulations and it, it takes five seconds, but in the simulation, it's somebody's actual life, um, which plays into a couple black mirror episodes. So that, that's kind of my idea. Um, I, I want to hear some AI. Yeah, essentially, um, which I think is some of the more interesting Black Mirror stuff, especially yeah. this season, in terms of what happens when you are in a simulation. What does that mean for you versus the real person versus what is what is a soul or what what constitutes a person? Right. You know, if they think they are a person, does that count? What, right. All that kind of stuff. So that, that's my idea. I have some other ones, but I want to hear yours first. Interesting. Um, mine, I think, similar in some aspects, but uh, mine is um, we know that Major League Baseball, when it makes rules changes, will oftentimes test them out in the minor leagues. First, it's the Arizona Fall League. Then things get implemented like the pitch clock and AAA and AA, that type of stuff. So imagine a world in the not-too-distant future in which robot umpires – become a thing as so many people oh, want yeah. them to okay, be they could very much already be a thing um but but put yourself in that mindset um in this scenario much like the episode hang the dj which is episode three of this uh this most recent season of black mirror which may be my favorite episode ever um this is a uh a, a device that you can interact with if you're an umpire so you're still there You as a physical human umpire are still there, but the way the strike zone operates is you are basically notified by a device how it judges a pitch, and you can call it based on that determination or your own determination. It's supposed to kind of get you in line with how a true strike zone should be called. Um, Beyond that, though the device can kind of figure out your strike zone, your biases and the way you call a game. And it starts to mold different patterns around that. And I think the, the dovetailing of the, the artificial intelligence trying to manipulate the human brain and the way that it would just drive you insane. If you were an umpire, (laughs) I think would be a a very fascinating thing to watch. And then eventually the robots rise and kill us all. Yes, of course. As and then we we're know. just we have robot catchers and robot first robot basemen. Umpire. Yeah, robot it'll just be a full-on robot baseball game. Yeah. I said on Twitter the other day, if we're going to have robot umps someday, they need to look like like Googie age robots. Like they need to look like robots from the Jetsons. I don't want futuristic iRobot cool-looking things. I want like old tin man oil can looking bizarre 1950s 1960s robots. Those are the only robot umpires I will ever accept. Yeah, hashtag like not my robot lives. umpires. One, one is green, one is red. Right, green right. Is strike, red is ball. Yeah, green is safe, yeah. red is out. That kind of thing. They don't have a, a a mouth. They just have like a plastic cutout that has a thing that lights up behind it when it's speaking. Yeah, my, <laughs> my other idea was kind of something similar, which was just taking the idea of a pitch clock and establishing it to everything in baseball. Ooh. So you have, you know, 25 seconds, whatever, to deliver a pitch. You have five seconds to put your gloves on before you get on base. You have, you know, 
let's say five seconds or five, however long it takes to get to first base. If you don't get there enough and fast enough, even if you beat the ball to first base, you're still out. And then that guys take that off the field. And then all of a sudden they're always, they always feel like they have to do things at a clock speed mm. and how that affects you off the field and mm. you know, all that kind of stuff. So interesting. If uh, the, the black mirror people want to get at us for a sports yeah. episode, you know, we are here. Was, yeah, we'll be there. We can we can help you out. We can give you some uh, some input on the way things should look to create a to craft an accurate feeling minor league baseball episode. I helped the HBO people with Eastbound and Down to Myrtle Beach in 2011. I could be on your service. <laughs> on your That's service, on your CV. In your service. Yeah, exactly. It's on my it's on my the old resume. Um, yeah, I like it. I like those. I would watch those shows. <laughs> Because I'm a, I'm a nerd that way. Um, also one about uniforms and um, if the uniforms came alive because <laughs> uniforms are interesting. Um, all right, that's gonna do it. Uh, the uniforms are made out of nanobots. <laughs> the right. uniforms are alive. Uh, they could like the bees in that last episode of season three. I didn't watch all of season three. Oh what? I think I've watched San Junipero. Yeah, San Junipero. Once you watch that, everything's downhill. Dallas Bryce Howard. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's Ron Howard's daughter. What? That's Ron Howard's daughter. Yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard. That's what I never knew that. Huh. That one was weird. That one felt way too real. That felt Oh, yeah, that's definitely going to happen soon. We'll all be reading each other. Who have asked for Instagram likes or something? Yeah, yeah. So the idea of somebody bringing you, I don't, I can't remember what it was. Rating you as if you are an app or as if you are like an Uber driver, basically. Yeah. Or bringing you cupcakes to try to get a five-star rating because they broke up with their girlfriend. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's that's probably definitely going to happen soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, we live in a terrible and frightening time. It's great. Um, so, so thank you for listening to us on your device <laughs> of your choosing. <laughs> this episode, literally not possible without the actual black mirrors in all of our hands. Um, that'll do it for this week's edition of the show before the show. For Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mon. We'll be back next week talking more things uh, minor league baseball. We will be, man, in the, uh, well, I guess not the last week of January, but nearly the last week of the last month without spring training activities underway. Pitchers and catchers report in less than a month. We're recording this on the 16th. Some pitchers and catchers will already be at their facilities by this time next month officially. Get excited. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.